Talo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Ways from RNZ Pacific. Uwawo Elisha Foon. Coming up. A draft security cooperation agreement between China and Solomon Islands has been leaked on social media. If this agreement is genuine, then I, th- I think that we can certainly be concerned. Australia accepts New Zealand's long-standing offer to take 450 refugees over three years from detention centres in the Pacific. But there's criticism. It doesn't go far enough. I think it is a face-saving gesture from a government which is in the, the last weeks of its of, of office. COVID-19 continues to hit New Zealand's Pacific communities hard. We hear from Pacific health providers on how Pacifica and New Zealand are fearing. Pacific people still have some of the highest hospitalisation rates in the Omicron outbreak. A draft security cooperation agreement between China and Solomon Islands has been leaked on social media. The unverified document includes seven articles which discuss the scope of cooperation between both nations. Massey University's Centre for Defence and Security senior lecturer Dr Anna Powles has seen the agreement on social media. She spoke to Morit Tuilaipa Taylor about what was in the document. Uh, talk about the scope of cooperation. Uh, it states that at the request of the Solomon Islands government that China can send a police, armed police, military personnel and other law enforcement and armed forces uh, to the Solomon Islands. Now, that raises a number of questions, uh, obviously, uh, with what is the distinction between police and armed police and, and who are the other law enforcement and armed forces uh, that I referred to uh, in the agreement. It also talks about uh, what kind of tasks that they would be involved in, uh, that a Chinese contingent would be involved in, uh, such as maintaining social order. It's not clear what that means. Uh, It also talks about providing assistance on other tasks, and it's also unclear what those other tasks Uh, would be. The agreement refers to protecting lives and property, humanitarian assistance and disaster response. So it is unclear what those other tasks refer to. Uh, It also talks about uh, the the agreement states that China may, according to its own needs and with the consent of the Solomon Islands government, make ship visits to the Solomons and carry out logistical replenishment in and have stopover and transition in the Solomons. And that also needs to be clarified. Uh, It's unclear uh, what China's own needs refers to, are those strategic interests, for instance, uh, which raises again uh, a number of concerns with respect to what if those interests cut across uh, the interests of of Solomon Islands or of its key partners, such as Australia or Papua New Guinea. Uh, And it also raises questions around and suggests that logistical support would be provided for ship visits in in Solomon Islands uh, and suggests that perhaps that China is um, could seek to establish a logistical supply base uh, in Solomon Islands to support uh, those those ship visits. Does it say what types of ships? It doesn't specify what, what type of ships uh, it's referring to, but uh, I think we can probably safely assume that they're referring to PLAN, to um, People's Liberation Army Naval ships, which uh, you know, we in the Pacific, we have seen uh, PLAN, uh, Chinese naval uh, ship visits to the region. China has a strong interest in maritime 
issues in the in the, in the, in the Pacific maritime domain. Uh, and so that that probably isn't surprising. And there has been long-standing concern, uh, very and very public long-standing concern uh, about the the potential for China increasing its engagement in the Pacific maritime domain, uh, and potential implications that may have for a potential base to support those ship visits. Is that a red flag? Actually, if there is possibly um, the idea of setting a base up in Solomon Islands? If this agreement is genuine, then I, th I think that we can certainly be concerned about that. Obviously, Solomon Islands is a sovereign country and can make the, um, and makes its own foreign policy decisions. But there is one element of the agreement that does raise uh, alarm bells, which is with respect to uh, information on security cooperation being between the Solomons and China, uh, only being released upon mutual agreement by both parties. And that suggests that there uh, would be uh, the, an intent to control public information, to control media briefings, to control what uh, access media has uh, to information about uh, security arrangements between the two countries. And so I think, you know, we, we can be uh, legitimately concerned uh, about the lack of transparency, about a degree of secrecy uh, around this agreement. China recently obviously had sent police to Solomon Islands to help with local enforcement following the riots. Uh, do you feel that this, if this is authentic, um, part of it was related to, to, to the police officers uh, heading to Solomon Islands? Absolutely. I think this is a, um, uh, again, we keep we keep adding in this, the caveat of if it is authentic, then it is a natural extension of that deployment. Uh, it the the agreement states uh, a five year time frame uh, to assist across you know a range of different issues and as as I said before we we need to better understand uh, what those tasks are what the legal jurisdiction um, issues are around this and and so it is a it is uh, a natural extension of that initial deployment that took place following the riots in late November. And do you know if the Solomon Islands has a similar agreement with any other nation like this? Well, it's interesting to contrast this with the uh, Australian Solomon Islands Treaty, under which Australia deployed to um, the Solomons in November last year, uh, and both New Zealand and Fiji were embedded with, uh, with the Australian uh, deployment. Uh, and it's very useful to actually contrast that treaty with this agreement. Um, you can see where the gaps and the ambiguities lie. Because it has been linked on social media, what are people saying about it? It's a great question. And there's been a huge amount of concern, obviously. It's feeding into a lot of the narratives that we saw, uh, which fueled aspects of the riots in November. The China-Taiwan uh, strategic um, narratives around strategic competition, uh, the concerns around uh, the Solomon Islands switch in, in 2019 from, from Taiwan to China. So it's fueling all of that. It's also fueling perceptions of corruption, concerns about corruption. It's fueling concerns about the capturing of Solomon Islands political elite uh, by, by foreign powers. And the sooner that clarity and transparency around the issue um, eventuates the better because it is you know obviously feeding 
feeding paranoia, it's feeding rumours. Maura Tuilepa-Taylor speaking to Dr Anna Powles. Australia's acceptance of New Zealand's long-standing offer to take 450 refugees over three years from detention centres in the Pacific has been criticised for not going far enough. In 2013, Australia introduced a policy preventing anyone arriving by boat ever settling in Australia. Instead, the asylum seekers were imprisoned in controversial offshore detention centres in Nauru and Manus Island. Refugee Action Coalition spokesperson Ian Rintoll joins me now. Bula, and welcome on Pacific Waves, Ian. I'm keen for your reaction. How significant is this? It's very, very welcome news, and there's quite a lot of excitement amongst some of the people who are on uh, Nauru who finally see a possibility of getting off Nauru and getting yeah, resettlement uh, somewhere. But uh, I think when you look at the deal in more detail, uh, it's very, very o- obvious that it is much, much too late to have to be the kind of really groundbreaking uh, agreement that it, that, that it could have been. The fact is there are many people on the Rue who are already engaged with the US or with, or with Canada. Uh, the fact that it precludes the people bringing people from Papua New Guinea uh, does mean, you know, that uh, except for, you know, around 40 people are on the Rue, 50 people are in detention um, in, in Australia. Uh, the other people who are going to go to New Zealand are people who are already living in the community uh, in, in, in Australia. So uh, while it's very, very welcome news for some, the fact that the Australian government has delayed for so long uh, negotiating this agreement uh, with New Zealand does mean that the number of people who are going to benefit from it at the moment uh, is far, far smaller than it should be. And these refugees, can you describe who they may be in terms of age and gender? Um, it does look like the, the deal is going to is overwhelmingly talking about men. Nauru was the of the offshore detention centres was the place where there were, you know, family and children. Uh, all the families and children are now in in Australia. There are some people with adult children or adult relatives uh, in a, you know <clears throat> who are still on Nauru who with relatives in uh, in Australia. Uh, so mostly, we're overwhelmingly, we're going to be looking at uh, you know at single men. They kind I think it comes from a whole variety of you know, nationalities. So you've got, you know, people, you know, Rohingya people, uh, you know, you've got Sudanese, you've got Iranians, you know, Iraqis. There's a, you know, the whole, you know, spectrum of, you know, of people who are actually held on the, in, in offshore detention. Um, and now, you know, now they will be, they will be coming. I mean, the people who have been left on the roof now almost nine years, I mean, a lot of them are in desperate need of, you know, getting somewhere where they can get, you know, medical, psychological help, where they can finally have, you know, security uh, with some certainty that they, you know, can start, you know, rebuilding their lives. They'll be very happy to come to New Zealand and to get permanent uh, you know, permanent residency in New Zealand and, and put the, you know, the torture of the last, uh, you know, nine years, you know, behind them. So 150 refugees a year. How will this work and, and where in the Pacific will they be coming from? The agreement says uh, they will only take people from Nauru or people who are from regional processing centres who are already uh, temporarily in Australia. 
so uh, that does mean the most, the most important people it means are, you know, the people in Nauru who are not engaged with the US or with Canada and the people who are in detention. There's about 51 people who from Papua New Guinea and Nauru who are still in closed detention uh, in Australia. So that will be, I think, the most, the, the first people, you know, that should, uh, should be considered. That's going to be about, you know, 100. Uh, the other 50 people, as I said, will have to be drawn uh, from people who are already uh, in the community uh, in, in Australia to make up that 150. And I think it, 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 it indicates what, what the, some of the silliness with the, with the agreement, that, that the other 50 should be coming from Papua New Guinea. That's the most urgent thing of Australia. Australia, you know, dump people in Nauru and Papua New Guinea. For some reason, uh, the agreement leaves the agreement excludes the people from Papua New Guinea. And there's around 100 people in Papua New Guinea who, if they had have been included in the agreement, actually we could have got pretty much everybody off Nauru and Papua New Guinea in the first year of this agreement. Um, but the exclusion of Papua New Guinea really is an unforgivable omission uh, in this agreement. Why this exclusion? Well, that's only something we can only know from the representatives of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Australia has maintained the fiction that it is no longer responsible for the people that they sent to, uh, you know, to Papua New Guinea. Um, they actually signed an agreement in January, you know, this this year, saying that Papua New Guinea would now be wholly responsible for the people Australia sent there. But uh, the idea that Australia couldn't have included uh, the people from Papua New Guinea in the agreement uh, is just a, you know, is a nonsense. Uh, New Zealand government could have insisted uh, from, you know, from their from their end of things. So why they've excluded is one of the one of the mysteries which really needs to be you know explained but it is one of one of the big holes for for however welcome this agreement is and it is it is welcome there is nonetheless a very very big hole uh, in in the in the agreement as it stands the original offer was made by the then prime minister john key in, in 2013 that's been continued and extended by successors bill english jacinda ardern but why would australia accept this now I think there's only one reason, and that is uh, we've got a coalition government in Australia is facing massive defeat in the in the election, which is going to take place in May. Um, I think they, the 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 guts of this really is a face-saving gesture uh, that they've been pushed into. Uh, the fact is that most people are off Nauru. Um, and, you know, Manus, the people who have uh, been brought to Australia, most of them have actually been, you know, released from, you know, from detention. Um, and I, I think for the government, it was a face-saving device. You know, they've been, you know, slowly, slowly releasing people. They've got to a point where there's relatively few numbers. They know most of the people on the Rue are going to, you know, Canada or, or the US. So I think it is a a face-saving gesture from a government which is in the, the last weeks of its of, of office. Thank you, Ian, for your time. In New Zealand, COVID-19 continues to hit Pacific peoples hard, with one of the highest hospitalisation rates due to high case numbers. Pacific peoples also made up 43% of all hospitalisations in the outbreak, and this peaked above 50% earlier on. Speaking at a press conference, the Fonal Chief Executive Tevita Funaki says Pacifica are still some of the most vulnerable to the outbreak. It became evident very early in the pandemic that Pacifica peoples were most likely to be severely impacted by COVID-19 due to the nature of the rapid transmission rates in large households and gatherings. Our churches, communities and school events have all been affected over the last two years 
Often multi-generational households have been impacted and families have lost loved ones. And it continues to hit us hard. Pacific people still have some of the highest hospitalization rates in the Omicron outbreak due to the volume of cases. Since August last year, more than 70,000 Pacific people have contracted COVID-19 and we together with other collective partners have worked on a regional basis to ensure families are supported. But the work began well before then. Our team have set up testing sites that have been running since 2020. We have established our first Pacific-led vaccination centre in Westgate, West Auckland in May 2021 and have vaccinated more than 92,000 people through that site. And our communities rallied to get people protected with multiple and ethnic-specific pop-up vaccination events where over 31,000 received their COVID-19 vaccine. South Point family doctor Fiona Shepard says she's proud of the collective effort by Pacific Health providers during the Auckland outbreak. I feel very humbled to have been part of a team who have supported our Pacifica communities in a time of such huge anxiety and heartbreaking time for many. We have been supporting the Pacific team at Farnell HQ since the end of last year. Since that time we have supported tens of thousands of people during their home isolation period. We have also managed to, on a priority basis, manage the different families. Each day the team at the Coordination Hub will clinically assess which level of support families need. And from there they reach out to the various collective partners, including ourselves, to do a number of similar triaging phone calls. Collectively we are making several thousand calls a day to understand the needs of those isolating at home, to ensure they get the right support that they need. In some cases, these families may require a daily call from a doctor or GP to make sure that their symptoms are not worsening. Or in some cases, it may be that they need food or welfare support. And that is where the collective members swing into action, providing food and welfare supplies where the need exists. It is a well-oiled, collaborative, coordinated approach based on supporting those seen at highest risk first. To put this in perspective, in the peak of the outbreak, there were 5,000 Pacific cases daily. In the surge, the collective part partners managed the highest 1,500 families. The Pacific Coordination Hub managed the next three to 4,000 at-risk families and aimed for first contact within 24 hours of the hub being notified of cases. It has been incredibly rewarding being able to support this work and to be a part of keeping our people safe. She says although it's been tough, the worst is not over yet. We know the pandemic has hit many of our Pacifica peoples particularly hard and we've all known friends and family who have really suffered both loss and significant hardship over the past two years. As a GP, I see firsthand every day just how hard it is for our communities. And we know that while the numbers are coming down, it is certainly not the end of the pandemic for us. I want to take the opportunity to remind our people to be vigilant, continue to wear your masks, and think about how you can best protect those most vulnerable in your households and villages.
That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Naka.